Father, as uh, we come to Genesis 8 and we, uh, we look at this, these characteristics of uh, Noah's faith, Lord, and uh, the things that made him such a mighty man of God, uh, Lord, I, I ask, you know, today, Lord, that each of us listen to this message and, and, and take a closer look at Noah's life and what made him such a man of God, and, and Lord, maybe we can apply some of those attributes to our own life. Take inventory of where we're at, Lord, and, and see where we need improving. And Because, Lord, just as in the day of Noah, uh, the battle's still raging. And, Lord, we're involved in that battle if we're true believers. And we don't want to be losers in that battle. We want to be winners. And, Lord, if we, if we follow in his footsteps, the footsteps that you uh, guided him in, Lord, uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we can have a victory as great as Noah's in this day in which we live. Lord, he lived in obscurity, and, and uh, not many people that, during his day knew even knew about him. But, Lord, you knew about him, and he did a mighty work for you because of his great obedience to you. So, Lord, help us learn these lessons today and, and again, apply them to our own lives uh, uh, by the power of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his precious name that I pray. Amen. Okay, again, if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Genesis. And we'll be in chapter number 8 today, Genesis chapter number 8. Years ago, I made up my mind that I wasn't going to ever watch again a, a movie or a television show about the Bible. Uh, because most of those television shows and movies that address biblical themes blaspheme the Bible, and they blaspheme God. But back in 2014, they came out with a movie called Noah, and it starred Russell Crowe, and I really was a fan of Russell Crowe at the time, and so uh, I saw the reviews. The reviews were great, and then I heard all of these evangelical pastors recommending the movie, talking about how True it was to the story of Noah. Well, if you watch the movie, you know it was anything but true. In fact, it was one of the stupidest movies I've ever seen in my life. Uh, It was one big blasphemy of God and the Bible from the beginning to the end. And let me just give you some examples. The movie begins and Noah's with his family and he's telling them the story about creation, how God created the earth with a big bang and how he created us through evolution. And so that was the way he's, the story starts out. Then he's building the ark and these angels that look like giant rocks. I don't know where they came up with that. Help him build the ark. And then after the flood, the flood comes. And, and uh, then after the flood, Noah comes, gets off of the ark and he spends the rest of the movie fighting all the wicked people that were left on the earth after the flood. Now, I don't know how any evangelical pastor could recommend such a movie because, again, it was just, to me, just one big joke. And it's a shame that the movie had to, you know, turn Noah into some sort of, you know, humanistic superhero because actually Noah was a hero. He was a mighty man of God, a mighty warrior of God. And, 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 He didn't win a battle against the wicked people that survived the flood because there weren't any wicked people that survived the flood. He won the battle that raged within himself. 
the battle for truth, the battle for righteousness, the battle to obey God. And, and so uh, he was a winner. Noah was a, a, a mighty warrior for God. And he had, he, had like, he had lots of great characteristics that we see as we look at him at the story of Noah in these few chapters that we're looking at in Genesis. But, but uh, really, I, I narrowed it down to like five characteristics that you see that are, I don't want to say unique to Noah, but that Noah possessed, the things that made him a mighty man of God. First of all, it was his faith. He had great faith. Where did he get that faith? Faith is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So God gave him his faith. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and that grace that he found was the great faith that he had in God. And because he had that faith, the second characteristic that you see in Noah is his perseverance. I mean, this guy wouldn't quit. He wasn't a quitter. God called him to do something that was going to take a long time, and and, uh, he finished that work. But here's the mark that made Noah really the mighty man of God that he was, and an attribute that's missing in a lot of Christians today. And that was his absolute, complete obedience to God. I mean, he he never faltered in his obedience to God. And, and part, another characteristic that you see in his obedience was his courage. Noah was a courageous man. We're going to see that as we look at this text today. And then not only was he courageous, not only did he have faith, not only did he persevere, not only was he completely obedient, he had great gratitude and love for the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord. And those characteristics are what made him a mighty man of God. And we're going to see those characteristics in play in the last part of chapter 8 here. Now, let's pick up where we left off last time. You remember Noah had released the dove, and the dove didn't come back. And uh, uh, so he realized at that point that the earth was drying up, that things were getting better, and that soon he was going to get off that ark. But still, I mean, he had to be going a little bit uh, stir crazy at this point because he had been on the ark for almost a year and the only daylight that he had seen were those few rays of sunlight that filtered through that window on the top floor of the ark and so uh, he hadn't even seen the sun for almost a year and and uh, now the ark is landed on Mount Ararat and it's up on top of this mountain and it's almost like as if it's shipwrecked on top of this mountain and Noah figures at this point The ark is of no use anymore. Now, he doesn't get off the ark, but let me tell you what he's about to do. He's about to turn the ark into a convertible. He's going to take the top off the ark so he can get some sunlight and so he can breathe some fresh air. And that's what we're going to see as we pick up in verse number 13. Listen to what it says in verse number 13. It says, And it came to pass in the 601st year, in the first month of the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark, and looked, and indeed the surface of the ground was dry. So he's been on the ark now for 314 days, and he, I think he's had enough at this point. And he tears the roof off the top of the ark, at least he rips off some of the roof off the top of the ark, if not, if not all of it. And finally he's breathing some fresh air, and he's basking in the sun a little bit. And he sees that the earth is drying up. But I don't know if he sees at this point, or if he even knows it at this point, but the earth at this point is a much different place 
from the place that Noah knew before the flood. Peter describes how different it was in one word. I want you to go over to, to ch- chapter uh, to Second Peter, and all almost to the uh, book of Revelation. Go to Second Peter, towards the very end of the Bible, and look at chapter number three. And let's back up to verse number five. And I want you to see how Peter describes the condition of the earth after the flood. First of all, in verse 5, he describes the creation. Listen, he says, For this is this they willfully forget, the wicked today, in our day, willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water. Now, that's the way the earth was created in the days of Adam and Eve, by which the world that then existed In Noah's day, in Adam and Eve's day, perished. I mean, verse number 6, perished. That's the word. You want a description of what happened to the world as Noah knew it? It perished, being flooded with water. Now, he doesn't say here, it doesn't say that the world was annihilated. It wasn't annihilated. He says that that the world, as Noah once knew it, perished in the flood. That world was gone. When Noah steps off that ark, the world that he wants to do is gone. Henry Morris, in his book, The Genesis Flood, lists some of the differences that Noah could expect to see when he got off of that boat. First of all, the earth that once was swarming with animals and people was now a barren wilderness. All those people were gone, and most of those animals were gone. Only the animals that were on the boat remained. And the, the, the earth that Noah knew before the flood was an earth that was just about covered in land. After the flood, it was covered primarily, 70% of the earth, with oceans and lakes and rivers. And so much of the sur- land surface, much of the mass of the land surface, was gone. Now, we think that there's still a lot of land out there, but get on an ocean for a while and you find out real quickly how much water there is and how much little land there is. And so the world was a lot different. Another thing that Morris mentions is that that water canopy that had protected the earth from harmful radiation and had uh, made the climate across the earth equal, that water canopy was gone. And that meant that the lifespan of animals and of human beings was going to gradually get shorter and shorter. That meant that there would be these polar regions that, that uh, would be uninhabitable. There would be a lot of un- uninhabitable land. That meant that there would be winds and rains and storms and snows and seasons. And, and so it, everything had really changed on earth. The really good news was that, and really I think the primary purpose of the flood was that all the wicked people and all their wickedness was gone. Those things were gone. All of that was gone. But with that said, with all the people gone, it was going to be a much lonelier world than it was before the flood. So uh, this world that Noah was about to go into was a, was going to be a very, very different place. And uh, just think about Noah at this point. I mean, he, he's a mighty warrior of God, and, and 
you know, I, it took a lot of faith to stay on that boat, but it also took a lot, it's going to take a lot of faith to get off of that boat because the world that he's about to go into is a very new and strange world. And uh, uh, he knew it was going to be a different world. So here's Noah. Just give you an example of how different it was going to be. Here's Noah. I'm, I'm just imagining this or, or uh, postulating this, this theory. Here's Noah, and he's on his convertible ark. He's not getting off until God tells him to get off. And then one day he looks on the horizon and he sees something that he's never seen before. He sees dark clouds brewing, and he hears thunder, uh, and he sees the lightning, and this storm comes and the rains begin to fall. Can you imagine how horrified he must have been? I mean, he thought the judgment was over, and, and now it's about to rain again. And he hadn't been given the sign of the rainbow yet, so he doesn't realize, or I doubt he realizes, that this is just a passing storm, and probably he's scared to death. So I can just hear him telling the boys, hey, boys, get the wood and put the roof back on the ark. This thing might not be over yet. But the storm came, and the storm passed and and i'm sure that noah at that point sighed a great big sigh of relief but but uh that was just a taste of some of the strange and terrifying things that noah was going to be facing when he got off of that ark and and uh uh he was going to have to persevere through a lot of trouble uh, just as he had done on the ark for a year just as he had done when he had built the ark look at verse number Go back now to to Genesis chapter 8 and look at verse number 14. We'll pick up back up in verse number 14. And it came to to pass in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark, and he looked, and indeed the surface of the ground was dry. And so it's dry. Now, we pick up in the second month in, four, on chapter, in verse number 14. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. So exactly, he's been on the boat for exactly 371 days at this point. Uh, uh, and, and then God, finally, God speaks to Noah saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your son's and your son's wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Now, God is, in essence, commanding that the animals and that Noah and his family be fruitful and multiply, but it's a command that he gives uh, the power for so that that takes place. I mean, the animals didn't understand God's voice when he said, be fruitful and multiply. They were going to be fruitful and multiply because God was ready for them to be fruitful and to multiply, and that's the way it was going to happen. This isn't some mandate for you to have lots of kids. Now, there's nothing wrong with having lots of kids. I mean, that's great if you have lots of kids. But, this is, but some people think that we're supposed to have 10 or 20 kids, or have as many kids as possible. You have as many kids as you want to have, or as God leads, not as many as you want to have, as many as God wants you to have. And that's how many kids you want to have. It might not be any, it might be 10 or 20. 
but, but you don't have to fill the earth anymore. The earth is pretty full with people, so, so don't take that as a mandate for, for filling the earth. But anyway, he, he tells these animals, at this point, there aren't many animals and there aren't many people, and so he tells them, you got, you're going you're gonna to be fruitful and you're going to multiply on the earth, is really what he's saying. So Noah went out with his sons and wife and sons' wives with him, every animal, every creeping thing, every bird, and whatever creeps on the earth according to their families, they went out of the ark. Now, the most important trait in Noah's character, the thing that I think contributed most to him being a mighty warrior for God, and I mentioned this earlier, was his complete obedience to God. Now, now why does, you know, of course... You, I think faith is your most important gift. But your faith should produce obedience, complete, absolute, complete obedience to God. That is a choice. You can have faith and choose not to be obedient to God. And I would question maybe if your faith is real faith. If you're not at least desiring to be completely obedient to God, you're probably not saved. So Noah, what impresses me the most about his character is just his absolute obedience to the Lord. I mean, you saw that before the flood began. I mean, the Lord calls him out of nowhere and he says, I want you to build an ark. I'm going to flood the world and I'm going to kill everybody on the earth. Hello? Say what? And then build an ark. I mean, you want me to build a little sailboat so I can survive? No, an ark. Because you're going to take two of every kind of animal, two of every kind of bug, two of every kind of bird. You're going to put you and your family on the ark. And you're going to need a really big boat. A really big boat. And Noah believes God. They believe his faith was there. But I'm so impressed with his obedience. Because every day he got up and he worked on that ark for almost 100 years. We don't know exactly how long, but probably about 100 years. He got up every day and went to work and built on that ark until it was complete and the floods came. You talk about complete obedience. That's complete obedience. And then the time came for the flood, and the Lord told Noah to come on to the boat. Now, that and what did Noah do? He obeyed the Lord. That was a no-brainer. I mean, I mean, if the Lord tells you to get on the boat and the floods are about to get, begin, you would be foolish not to get on the boat. So, so that obedience you're really not too impressed with. But God also told Noah, without a word, don't you get off of that boat. Don't get off of that boat. Now, how did he tell him without a word not to get off that boat? When he sealed the door of that boat, when God opened the door, he put Noah in, and then he sealed the door of that boat. What was God saying to Noah? God was saying to Noah, I've shut and sealed this door, and I'm the one who's going to open this door, and don't you get off of this boat until I tell you to get off of this boat. And, and so here is Noah. I mean, the, the floods come, and 40 days and 40 nights of rain, and I think maybe Noah thought after those 40 days and 40 nights he would get off the boat. Well, he didn't get off the boat. I mean, 350 days before the waters even began to, to, to recede. And then after 300 days, Noah lets this raven loose, and the raven uh, eventually doesn't come back, and so Noah thinks that's good news, and things are dried up because the raven has found food, and the raven has found a home, and so 
I'm going to be getting off this boat really, really soon. And then the second time he lets the dove off the boat, the dove comes back with an olive branch in his mouth, and that lets Noah know that the plant, the plant life on earth is, is uh, budding again, and, and, and so things are looking good. And then, then he, the third time he lets the, the dove go, go, uh, go out, the dove doesn't come back, which tells him the dove has found food and the dove has found a home. And so that's really good news. So he takes the roof off the boat. And uh, he's wanting to get off that boat really bad. Uh, he sees the sunshine and, and he sees the mountaintops and he sees the dry land. And, and uh, he's thinking, you know, it, it, it's time to get off the boat. And, but here's what amazes me. He doesn't get off the boat. Now, he takes the roof off, and we do that a lot of times in our life. We make convertibles out of some of the things, uh, situations we're in, and we, we kind of lean towards doing something, but we don't do it because we want to be obedient to God, and we want to wait on God. And so Noah, he, he does kind of, you know, uh, maybe push the, the border a little bit but by making the boat into a convertible, but he doesn't get off the boat. It's going to be 57 days after he takes the, the roof off the boat, before he's going to actually get off the boat. And think of the temptation to get off that he had to face. I mean, uh, the surface was dry. I mean, why wait? I mean, why not get off the boat now? Uh, he was probably running out of food. He had to be going, as I said earlier, he had to be going a little bit stir-crazy after a year on that ark. I mean, and he had to be curious about what the earth was going to look like when he got off of the ark. Uh, he had to be ready to get on with his life. And so, so why wait? I think a lot of people would have gotten off the boat. But Noah waited. He waited. Why did he wait? He waited because he loved the Lord. He loved the Lord and he wanted to be obedient to the Lord. Listen to me. Don't say you love the Lord when you're not obedient to the Lord. Obedience and love go hand in hand. Jesus put it like this, if you love me, keep my commandments. Why was Noah obedient? Because he loved the Lord. I think he also feared the Lord. If any man ever feared the Lord, you've got to believe Noah feared the Lord, especially at this point. He had seen an entire disobedient culture wiped out. And so he wasn't even thinking about being disobedient. He wasn't even going to engage in any mental gymnastics. He wasn't going to debate in his mind whether or not he should get off that ark. He wasn't going to get off of that ark not one moment earlier, not one second earlier than when God told him to get off the ark. Now that is Complete obedience. When you wait on the Lord till the very end, you wait on him and you persevere to the very end. That is complete obedience. If you cut and run on the Lord at any moment before you're supposed to, if you quit on the Lord, you're disobedient and you're no different from Saul. No different from Saul. You remember Saul? You remember how after his second year uh, as being king of Israel, 
how he went to battle against the Philistines. And as he went to battle, he went to Gilgal to battle the Philistines. And Samuel told him, wait seven days, wait seven days, and then I will come and I will make a burnt offering to the Lord, and then you'll go into battle and you'll win the battle. And Saul waited one day and he waited two days, and as he was waiting, he saw the Philistine army building. And then by the time it got to the seventh day, they had... 30,000 chariots and 60,000 horsemen and, and as many soldiers, more soldiers than, than, the human eye could, than the human mind could count. I mean, as far as he could see, he saw Philistine soldiers. And it was the seventh day, and Samuel wasn't there. And he waited till about noon, and Samuel wasn't there. And he waited till about mid-afternoon, and Samuel wasn't there. And in a way, I don't blame him. I mean, he's, he's, why he's got this small army and the Philistines are gathering more people, Samuel's delaying coming to, to make this sacrifice. And so what does he do? He pulls, he says, build an altar. He, he makes a sacrifice. And no sooner does he make that sacrifice, Samuel shows up. And Samuel shows up and he tells him, because of your disobedience, the kingdom of God has been taken away from you. I mean, can't, I mean, can't you emphasize with him a little bit? I mean, I mean, he, he's seeing this army growing and growing and growing, the his enemy growing and growing and growing, and he's not able to do anything about it. And there's this temptation to 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 make this sacrifice himself. All seven days, he's 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 wanting to get to battle, and before the Philistines' army get, gets any larger, before they gather their forces anymore, and and you can't really blame him. But that's not what God told him to do. How many times in our life do we get in situations where, where, where we just, we wait and we wait and we wait and we wait and we wait on God and he doesn't come to deliver us and we just finally give up on God and we take things in our own hands. And when we do that, that is absolute disobedience. If you wait on the Lord to the very end, that is absolute disobedience. Complete obedience. And that's exactly what Noah did. He waited and waited and waited and waited to get off that boat, but he wasn't going to get off of that boat until the Lord told him to get off of that boat. When, he, when the Lord told him to get on that boat, what did he do? He got on that boat. And when the Lord told him to get off that boat, he got off of that boat. I mean, in chapter, again, back to chapter 8, uh, verse 15, he says, go out of the ark. And then uh, in verse 18, Noah went out of the ark. Uh, and I, I just went over how much the world had changed. And so, so it didn't take much uh, courage or much obedience to get on the ark. But, it, he, you know, even though he's, he's stir crazy, he's wanting to get off the ark, to take that step, first step off of that ark had to take a lot of courage too. And so uh, he had to be obedient in that also. You know, those two commands that were given to Noah to come on the ark and to go off the ark or to get off the ark, to go off the ark, should sound familiar to you and I because those are the two overarching commands that we've been given by Jesus Christ. First of all, he says, come. 
In Matthew eleven twenty eight, he says, Come to me, all you who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come, and I will give you rest. Then he says, Go. In Matthew 28, verse 19 and 20, he says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and, the, and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Now, it doesn't take much courage if you're weary and heavy laden to come to the Lord. That, that didn't take much courage on my part to come to the Lord when he called me to come. I came. I came running to the Lord. But it takes a lot of courage when God calls us to go. It takes real faith for us to go. Faith that, and that faith is a gift of God. And that faith is what gives us the courage to go where God calls us to go, when he calls us to go. And even if it's someplace way outside our comfort zone, we've got to go when God says go. And if we don't obey God's commands to come and to go to the very letter, then we're no different from Saul. Later on, Saul is uh, told to, to, he's about to go battle with the Amalekites, and he's told to kill every Amalekite man, woman, and child and to kill all of their cattle. Don't save anything. Wipe them totally out. It's a polluted culture. Every bit of it's polluted. And God says, wipe it totally out. And, and Saul pretty much wipes them out. I mean, he pretty much obeys the Lord. But he keeps some of the cattle, and he keeps the king of the Amalekites for himself. And Samuel shows up again. And Samuel says, what's this sound of sheep I hear, these bleeding sheep I hear in, in my ears? And Saul says, well, I was saving the sheep to make a sacrifice. And remember what Samuel told Saul. He says, it is better to obey God than to sacrifice. To to disobey is as witchcraft. And that applies to all of us. You know, you got to get this thing in the proper order. You cannot worship God. You can't make sacrifices to God. Our worship is our sacrifice. You can't make those sacrifices if you're not obedient to God. I see a lot of people, and and I'm not talking about people so much in this church, that call themselves Christians, and they're not being obedient to the Lord's calling. They're not doing what the Lord's called them to do. And yet their outward worship seems to be pretty impressive. But it doesn't impress me if they're not being obedient to God. Because the Bible says that to disobey is as witchcraft. And so if we're, you know, if if we're disobeying God and trying to worship, we're no different from Saul. But Noah was different. Noah obeyed God, and then he sacrificed. And uh, uh, he, he, he worshiped God in prayer. Look at verse number 20. It says, then... Noah, uh, after he had obeyed God, notice that, after he had obeyed God and done what God had told him to do, come off the ark, told him to get on the ark, to stay on the ark, and to come off of the ark. And Noah obeyed him, and he was done. Now, his life wasn't over. He had a lot lot more trouble coming into his life, a lot lot of good things coming into his life. His life wasn't over. But at that point, he had demonstrated his complete obedience to God and God was pleased with him. And at that point, Noah built an altar to the Lord, and he took of every clean animal 
and of every clean beast and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So we see this next characteristic of Noah, this mighty warrior of God uh, here in this verse. We see his gratitude and worship to the Lord. I mean, no sooner does he get off the boat, the first thing that he does is offer up a burnt offering uh, and worships the Lord with thanksgiving and prayer. I mean, you can just see this mighty man of God humbling himself before the Lord. Now, some people say, well, that wasn't a very costly offering because God had given him uh, seven domesticated animals, three pairs, and he had given him a clean animals, domesticated animals. He had given him seven of each of those kind, and uh, uh, he, he had three pairs left if he sacrificed one. So he sacrifices one of each of these clean animals, and it really didn't cost him that much. But you've got to think about this. There are not many animals left in the world, and the, it's the domesticated animals that Noah would use for his sustenance and, and, and to, to maintain his, his life. And so they were very costly to him. And more than likely, he had raised these little animals up. And we know he had raised these little animals up there on the ark. He had raised all the animals up. And he loved those animals. So to sacrifice any of those animals was, was, was costly to Noah. But he makes this offering in gratitude and humility. I mean, in gratitude for the fact that God had delivered him from the storm. He had delivered him from the flood. He had delivered him uh, while everybody else had perished. And in humility, because he realized that even though he was a great man of God, everything that he had and everything that he was was a gift from God. His faith was a gift of God. And he knew that he was a sinner and that he needed a propitiation, a payment to pay for his sin. And so so he makes this offering, and God was very pleased with his offering. Look at verse number 21. A good thing God was pleased. And the Lord smelled the, the soothing aroma. And after he smelled the aroma, it says then. There's that word then again. It was at that point the Lord says, because Noah was a humble man and he made this offering and he worshiped the Lord in prayer, the Lord smelled the aroma and then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake because men now are going to be wonderful people. No, God, no fool. Listen to what God says at this point. He says, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. I can't relate to that, can you? You better believe I can relate to that. My imagination... I'm sure yours isn't like this, but my imagination can really get in the gutter sometimes. Mine's as bad as Royce. I don't know how bad Royce is, I'm joking. But my, mine is, my imagination, if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit living in me, my imagination would continually be on evil things. And you say, well, my imagination isn't on evil. Well, do you watch television? Every bit of that's evil. I mean, you can find very few wholesome things on television, and most of us watch television. 
and we watch sports and we do all sorts of things in this world where, where the people who are producing those things, their minds are continually on evil. And when we consume those things, our minds are being continually on evil. And I, I consume them sometimes myself, and I'm sure all of you do. You, if you're in this world, if you live in this world, you have a fallen nature, you have a mind that is continually on evil. But God is saying here, I'm still going to redeem this world. I haven't given up on this world. I haven't given up on sinners. Noah was a sinner, and I saved him, and I'm going to save the rest of this world. And so he says at this point, he says, he says I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagine, even though there's still going to be evil, the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I did in the flood. So what the Lord is saying at this point is that as long as the earth remains until there's a new heaven and there's a new earth, I will never again destroy every living creature. Now, in the great tribulation, it's going to get really bad. But some of the animals and some of the people are going to survive the great tribulation. And he's also saying here that he will never curse the earth again with any additional curse. Now, that doesn't mean the old curse went away. It just means that God's not going to add any new curses to the earth. We lived in a cursed world. Don't, don't kid yourself. It's still cursed. And then he says, and he also says that, that uh, while the earth remains, verse 22, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. Seed time and harvest, spring and fall. So you've got four seasons there. You've got cold and heat. You got day and night, and they, no matter what the global alarmist warming, global warming alarmists tell you, we are still gonna have seasons. We are still gonna have cold and heat. We are still gonna have springtime and fall, and we're gonna have summer, and we're gonna have winter until the Lord gives us a new heaven and a new earth. Even in the millennial, there will be summer and springtime and uh uh, fall and winter. Now, I I get a kick sometimes. I think the Lord, you know, in Psalms chapter two, I believe it is, it says the Lord sits on His throne and He laughs when when men, you know, do all of their evil things and 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 uh, uh, hate the Son of God and and ask uh, declare that they're not going to serve the Son of God and and uh, men wants to live without God and uh, believe things that aren't in the Bible. And I, the Lord sits on his throne and he laughs. And I, I was thinking about this this past week. when I, The week before I was hearing the, how the summer was, I mean, the winter was so mild and we we're in global warming and, and uh, you know, it's never going to get cold again. And then I think the Lord just kind of laughed and he sent that polar vortex down and it was a minus 50 degrees in the United States. Now, they give it a name called polar vortex, but they don't know what that is. It caused the, the, it to be colder in Chicago than it was in Antarctica. But I think maybe it's God saying, hey, I'm the one who's in control of this weather, and as long as I'm on my throne, there's going to be cold and there's going to be heat. Sometimes it's going to be really cold, and sometimes it's going to be really hot. And I think the more and more uh, we, we get closer to the great tribulation, the more and more we're going to see things like this polar vortex, and we're going to see the earth heating up, and we're going to see these these storms and uh, earthquakes and all of these things get worse. 
but the Lord is not going to destroy the earth until he makes a new heaven and a new earth at the end of the millennium when we go into uh, the uh, to eternity. All right, now, I, I just want to finish this up today by asking a question to everybody in here, asking myself this question. I mean, do you consider yourself a great warrior for God? A mighty man or a mighty woman of God. I mean, God's not a respecter of persons. So any of us can do great things for God. We're not going to build an ark. God's not going to do that again. But we can do things like Noah did. We can do mighty things for God. I mean, if we possess those characteristics. First of all, if we have real faith, I mean, that kind of faith that moves mountains, that faith that, that empowers us to be more than conquerors in Jesus Christ. I mean, then it also requires, like Noah, that we have a willingness to persevere. I mean, are you willing to persevere? Are you willing, when God calls you to do something, to stick to it until he tells you to quit? There are not many people like that in the church anymore. I mean, we've got a lot of quitters. I mean, not many people sticking out. We had some guy come in here a couple of months ago telling me how he was part of the original group of people that started Calvary Chapel, and he was running around telling everybody what, what a hero he was. I mean, I, when I came to Calvary Chapel, there was like six people here, so they didn't do too well because they had a bunch of quitters, a bunch of people. I mean, there's a few people in here that stuck this thing out all the way through. But, but I wouldn't be bragging about quitting on something. I mean... I mean, but that's, that's the way the church is. I mean, we've we got all sorts of quitters, people that are not willing to persevere. Uh, and and long-suffering long is a fruit of the Spirit, but it also involves our choice. We've got to be willing. We've got to choose to stick things out. You're never going to do anything mighty for God if you're not going to stick out what God calls you to do because the devil's going to chase you away. He's going to get you to quit. So, you, so perseverance is a necessity. And then I think the most important thing, because it involves our choice that we have to be, that we have to possess if we're going to be a mighty man or mighty woman of God, is complete obedience to the Lord. And that means, and, and I see a lot of, a lot of us that, that, that fail in this. First of all, it means that we put away anything in our life that we know does not, match up with what with the character that God wants us to be it doesn't matter if, if anything that 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 uh, we know that God doesn't want in our lives any sin that's in our life that's got to be put away that's the first part of complete obedience the next part of complete obedience is that we are willing to go wherever God wants us to go whenever he wants us to go forever long he wants us to go that's complete obedience and without complete obedience we're not going to be mighty men and mighty women of God. And then the next thing is courage. You know, courage, I believe, is, 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 is a fruit of the Spirit, too. I mean, it's the Spirit of God that, that casts out fear. I mean, perfect love uh, casts out fear. I mean, understand that. And it's rooted in our faith, but it's also our choice. It's also our choice to step out 
and do what God calls us to do, no matter how difficult that situation might be or how uncomfortable it might make us. We've got to, we've got to exercise courage. We've got to decide we're, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna do this thing that God's called us to do. And if we don't do that, we're never going to get anything done. And then you're going nowhere as a man or woman of God if you don't have gratitude and humility. I mean, if you don't worship God in spirit and in truth, if you don't realize that everything that you have comes from God, every good and perfect gift comes from God, that every ability you have, every gift you have, every talent you have, it all comes from God. It belongs to God, and it needs to be used in God's work, in his kingdom. And if we don't worship God in, in spirit and in truth, we really, we, we really, you know, we, we're, we're not going anywhere. And, and our, that means we love God. And our love, again, is tied to our obedience. If we're not completely obedient to God, we don't really love God. Well, Pastor, that's, that's all good and well but I don't really care about being a great man or woman of God. All I really care about is getting to heaven. That's, that's the attitude of a lot of Christians. I mean, just, just get me to heaven and, and I'll be fine. Be careful with that attitude. Because the attributes that I just gave you of a mighty man or woman of God are also the attributes of a real Christian with real faith. I mean... A lot of Christians ride the fence. They're obedient some of the time. Somebody told me several weeks back, I have integrity most of the time. If you have integrity most of the time and you don't have integrity some of the time, you don't have any integrity. If you're partially obedient to God, if you're obedient to God most of the time, but sometimes you aren't obedient to God, you don't have obedience. You're not an obedient person. You're not an obedient Christian. If you're hanging on to things in your life that God, you know God has said, get rid of those things in your life and you're hanging on to them, you don't love God and you're not obedient to God. Don't kid yourself. And you're never going to accomplish anything for God. I mean, that's what Saul's problem was. He tried riding the fence. I'm going to tell you what, there wasn't a more courageous man who ever lived than Saul. I mean, you go up on that mountain, good boy, fighting Philistines, and you get, you get arrows in your chest and you're still fighting them. And, and, and then when, when, when you're down on your knees and they're about, to, take, about to, to, to torture you, you stick a sword through your heart. That takes courage. The man had courage. And most of the time, especially early in his life, he was obedient to God. But just that, just that few hours of not waiting, he, lo he lost his kingdom because of that. He was riding the fence between being worldly and being godly. And, 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 you, and when you do that, you're never going to accomplish anything for God. And I've got to tell you, I don't, I'm not Saul's judge, but my opinion, personal opinion, is Saul was lost. He wasn't saved. And because of, he didn't love God. If he had loved God, he would have been obedient to God. Let me finish with this. Jesus says this in Luke 11, chapter 3. He says, he who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather, listen, he who does not work with me, who does not fight with me, he scatters. In other words, if you're against him, and you're scattering, you're not saved. You're either for him or you're against him. And let me tell you what. If you're a real Christian, 
a born-again Christian, you better be a mighty warrior of God in the day in which we live. Because you're going to fight battles. Those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not maybe, not one day. You will be persecuted. That's going to happen. And it's going to get worse and it's going to get worse and worse. If there wasn't a wicked person on this earth, think about it. The flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. You're in a battle within yourself. So the Christian life is a constant battle. And the only way you're going to have victory is to be like Noah and to have courage, to be obedient, to worship God, to have real faith, to love the Lord, and to persevere, whatever God calls you to do. If you do all of those things, then you're going to be a mighty man or woman of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your word and the conviction we get from your word and Lord, how all of us need to take inventory of just where we are at in our walk with you. Lord, are we truly worshiping you? Do we truly love you enough to be obedient to you? Lord, do we have the courage to go out and and do the things that you call us to do. Are we just living our lives, just waiting for the rapture, waiting to, to, to see you in heaven? That's, that's going to be wonderful, Lord, but there's something wrong with us if we're not in the game. Because you said go. You said go, just as much as you said come. So, Father, I ask you to give us that courage, to give us that perseverance. Lord, to... Show us areas where we aren't obedient to you. And, Lord, then we need to make that choice. And we need to be obedient to you because we love you and we worship you. And we want to be mighty men and women of God. Lord, that begins, as you know, with real faith. Real faith that comes in believing in Jesus Christ. So if there's someone in this room who, Lord, never really has put their faith and trusted you, who's never really been born again, I just ask today that you touch them in a way that they receive Christ in their heart in a real way. And all of that will manifest itself in godly character, Lord. We don't have any godly character. We're not obedient to you. We're hanging on a bunch of worldly stuff. And we're ignoring our relationship with you, Lord, then we're probably not truly saved. And so, Lord, I just ask today that you just convict every person in this room that's playing a game like Saul played to get serious about their faith, to get serious about their relationship with you. Just ask all of this in Christ's name. It's in his precious name that I pray.